you have to be a flexible learner and you have to be able to connect what you learn across disciplinary boundaries and figure out how to use that to solve some of the world's challenges and, and problems. Welcome to Arts Engines. I am your host, Aaron Dworkin, and I am incredibly honored to have as our guest today, Dr. Ronald Crutcher, who serves as president of the University of Richmond. As with all of our guests, I will leave it to you to look up their bios online. As you know, they are all truly tremendous and incredible leaders in arts and creativity, as well as being true arts engines in our field. So with that, welcome, Dr. Crutcher. Thank you, Aaron. It's a pleasure to be with you today. So I thought I would just kind of start off with this uh, question about, like, you know, what kind of got you into the arts? Obviously, you've been a lifelong cellist. Where, where did that come from? Uh, where did it start? Where did the inspiration for you and the connection to the arts begin? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, it's, it's really through, to, to, to begin with, it was music. I mean, it's played, a, music has played an incredibly important role in my lifetime, starting at the age of six when I started singing solos in the church in Cincinnati, Ohio, the Black Baptist Church. But then in addition to music, uh, also art and, and architecture. Uh, as a little boy, a young child, I, I, would, I would visibly, physically respond to pieces of art, beautiful buildings, beautiful, Cincinnati has a great art museum, pieces of art. Uh, and then, you know, later at, when I was 14, I started playing the cello. And, uh, and really what got me into the career itself was the fact that uh, a cello professor at Miami University heard me perform at the age of 15. I'd been playing for less than a year, played two movements of the box suite. She was impressed with how much progress I'd made. She offered to teach me free of charge. Wow, and is that typically a later starting period than, it's, it's than a lot of it's, Yeah, yes, it's much later than most uh, people. As, as I said, music, singing was my primary outlet in the arts. And I sang from age of six. I was in one of the best junior high choirs in the state of Ohio when suddenly I had this opportunity to learn how to play an instrument and I chose the cello and it, it really, it chose me in a way. I, we fell in love with each other and I couldn't put it down. Um, so, uh, you know, and, 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 and I was fortunate that she offered to teach me. She was one of Jano Starker's first American students. She taught me how to play the cello as an athlete. That is, she emphasized the importance of the fact that um, that my body played a role in playing the instrument, right? right. And, and I, and I, I uh, attribute her with the fact that in all of my years, I've never had any physical problems with the instrument. Gotcha. Awesome. So how did over that, you know, kind of landscape and your trajectory, how did you really end up in administrative and academic leadership um, from what began as this, you know, passion, you know, bringing parts of yourself to, to audiences through your cello? Well, it was, it's not, certainly not what I intended to do. My, my intention was to 
be, she was my, Liz Potiger was her name. She was my role model. I wanted to be like her, a professor in a university, perform in a string quartet. But then um, as I progressed uh, towards promotion and tenure uh, at the University of North Carolina, the provost asked me if I would serve as an associate provost. And that was my first foray into a full-time administrative position. I did it for one year on an acting uh, basis and found that I loved the challenge of the work. Uh, and I love the fact that I could have a broader impact than simply the students that I taught in my class or classes or in, in my studio. And, um, and after two years in that position, I thought, you know, I like this work, but I want to, I want to be in a musical setting. And uh, that's when I went to the Cleveland Institute of Music as the vice president for academic affairs. Mm-hmm. So it was a gradual thing, you know, it never, I, I, when I started out, even as associate provost at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro, I, the thought of becoming a president was not at all on the table. It right. was, you know, I'm, I'm pretty good at this. I'd love to be able to use that, that talent in a musical artistic uh, right. So, you know, I think there's a lot of students, I look back to when I was a student and, you know, we would view, you know, the president of our institutions or these university presidents and like, you know, what do they really do? What are they doing up there? You know, I've got my teacher. I know my teacher teaches me how to play my instrument, but you know, what does this president of a university do? Do you kind of just, you know, give our viewers a sense of, you know, what is that that life of a of a president really comprised of and and what about that clearly has has spoken or driven you over the years to feel like um, you're able to bring value to the institution you serve and to our field in that type of capacity? Can you kind of pull back the veil a little bit on what it really is? Well, it's actually uh, this is my second presidency, as you know, and they've been different. I mean, at, at Wheaton College, it was a small liberal arts college with 1,600 students. Um, it was uh, really there a combination of raising money, advancing the reach and reputation of the institution, as well as you know, leading the institution as the top person, if you will, in, in the institution. And, and I was there for 10 years, you know, several of which included the last economic downturn. Uh, so that, 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 that and, and, and what I didn't have a lot of time to do was interacting with students, right? That's, which is ironic. And that's, that's something that's changed in the past 25 years with college and university presidents. At the University of Richmond, a much larger institution where, where we have 4,000 students, uh, 3,000 undergraduates, five schools, and we have a very different structure. Here, I spend about 70 to 80% of my time away from the university, raising money, advancing the reach and reputation of the university, engaging our alumni and our, and, and our parents. I have two executive vice presidents who, who basically run the institution, if you, if you will. Um, and, 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 and that, that also does not leave a lot of time for interaction with students. But what I will say to you, because student development, uh, you know, ensuring that students can develop fully 
and achieve their expectations is the motivation for the work that I do. Right. Um, I find ways to interact with students. I have, I have a mentoring group that I, uh, that I meet with on a monthly basis. Uh, so that mentoring group is made up of about six first-year students, and, then I, and I'm with them for the entire four years they're here. But in the first year, I meet with them on a monthly basis. And that's my way of staying connected to students. The other thing I would say about my job, if you look at my daily schedule, anytime when I, when, you know, I said I'm away a lot, right? When I am here, I have meetings back to back. Lots, lots of, 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 of meetings because, um, you know, uh, I, I, even though my two executive vice presidents are running the institution, if you will, um, people, they want to get, hear my perspective on things. Right. Plus, I have a, I, I'm, I'm tied into the national scene. I'm on uh, several national boards, and I bring that information back and share it with my institution as well. Great. So kind of on the national piece, but also the, the external piece you were mentioning, you, know, you spend a lot of time needing to advocate for, for the university. You're uh, co-chair of the uh, LEAP, the Liberal, uh, Liberal Education in America's Promise. And, and so a huge part is this advocacy of a, of a liberal arts education. But can you speak to kind of how do you advocate for that? And then the second part of my question to that is, what then is the role that you view of the arts in a broader university setting? And how do you speak to and advocate to that, especially for our viewers who need to do that themselves? Yes. Well, on, on, in terms of the liberal arts, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm really bullish about it. I think that a liberal arts education is the best possible education for where we are now in the world in terms of how quickly, how rapidly things are changing because of technology, you know, and, and innovation is the, is the name, you know, is, is the name of the, of, of the game these days. And so it means that rather than being narrowly educated for a specific job, you have to be educated, you have to be a flexible learner, and you have to be able to connect what you learn across disciplinary boundaries and figure out how to use that to solve some of the world's challenges and, and problems. Uh, anyone who thinks you can be narrowly educated is way off the dime because, as, as you well know, Aaron, things are changing so rapidly. Any, if you take, you know, computer programs, any program you learn today is going to be different in a week, if not in a few days, right? right. So you have to figure out how to, um, how to get from where you were to the, to the new place, primarily on your own. Uh, so I, I, I and and there's so there's no one who can convince me that being educated narrowly is going to prepare you well to be that kind of flexible learner. With respect to the arts, uh, again, I'm, I, I feel very strongly that um, that universities should offer robust robust programs in the arts, not solely for those who wish to make their careers in the arts, but for for all students. Because I believe, particularly now during this, these crazy times that we're going through as a result of COVID-19, the arts can help lift any human being above the, the vicissitudes and fears and disappointments of the day. And, uh, and, and can be, I mean, that's certainly what I rely on. Uh, uh, you know, uh, you know the, uh, art, you know, film, uh, poetry, uh, music, 
uh, I mean, in addition to performing myself, just listening to the, to the music, I feel very strongly about that. And I think our students bear that out here. I mean, we, we have robust uh, performing organizations. And I would say at our university, in any given organization, up to half of the students in that organization, the orchestra, whether it be orchestra, choir, the jazz band, are going to be people who are not majoring in that particular area. Yeah. Right. Gotcha. Now, you also mentioned that, you know, you still do some performing. And so one of the things that has been so remarkable to me is most, you know, whether it's academic leaders or leaders in the private sector who came from a performing career or who were able to perform, don't really keep performing anymore and and largely probably because they let their skills slip a little bit uh, given their administrative duties um, but you have kept an ongoing stellar level of you know excellent level of of actual uh, you know career performing going um, and as a matter of fact at the time of this taping you're going to be doing a, a performance tomorrow uh, online for for everyone but so could you kind of just speak to uh, why? Obviously, you don't have to do it. And, uh, and there are so many administrators who I think either don't want to uh, or can't because they don't practice. And how, how do you view that and why do you keep Yes. Going? Well, to begin with, I'll go back to the beginning when I, I mentioned that the provost asked me at the University of North Carolina in Greensboro to be associate provost. When I took on that job, I made a promise to myself that at, at, at any time, um, uh, the job made it impossible for me to play at a certain level. I mean, you know, I'll be honest, I'm not going to play Dvorak concerto with an orchestra anymore. I, mean, I, I did that back in the day, but that's not going to happen. But just at, at a level that's good quality, and for me, it's been primarily through my, my trio, but I also do some solo recitals. I said, if I ever get to that point, I'll quit the administrative work. Now, that's the promise I made to myself. How do I do it? Well, I, I just, every morning I get up early, I get up at five. I used to get up at 4.30, and now I get up at five, and I practice every single day. If sometimes, if only 10, 15, 20 minutes, uh, just to keep the, the, the chops going. But I have to be honest with you and say, you know, I remember I mentioned that Liz Fodiger taught me how to be an, a, an athlete, how to play the cello as an athlete. I have to give her credit for helping me learn how to, how, how, to, how to interact my body, to bring my body to the cello in such a way that I had never had any injury. So I can go from, when I, when I, when I go do concerts with my trio, I can go from um, 10 minutes, 15 minutes a day on the cello to practicing two hours, three hours with the, with the trio and not have any uh, physical problems as a result. Wow. Wow. So it's just, it really is extraordinary. Kind of switching gears a little bit now to, you know, kind of leadership during times of crisis. Yes. Um, uh, could you kind of share the key, you know, um, aspect that you've, you've had to bring in terms of leadership related to the current crisis when you look at, you know, the past just couple of months, um, any key things there at Richmond that you've had to either implement um, or address or bring about a change that you feel at least at this point is really impactful and other leaders as they're dealing with the stresses and challenges of, 
of their own ensembles or organizations could, uh, you know, could benefit from? Well, for one thing, I, I think it's critically important to, for people, well, at any time when there's a, a, um, a situation like this, whether it be a pandemic or whether it be the economic downturn 12 years ago, it's important for your constituencies to know what you're thinking about the institution as a leader. And so we have a communications plan, you know, that with, with ongoing communications from me, from my two executive vice presidents, uh, or, and, and other uh, officers in the university. And in fact, this concert that I'm doing tomorrow on our Facebook page was initially intended just for our community, for our, our alums, our students, our parents, faculty and staff. And, 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 and because of reasons beyond my control, it's gone broader, uh, broader than that. So that's one thing, be, be in contact with everybody. And then as we looked at, in terms of what we've done, uh, we, we made some commitments. Uh, we, we, we made a commitment first that we would continue keeping our people employed, our faculty and our staff, except for part-time people, even though we don't have any students on campus. We have 50 out of the 3,000, we have 50 on, on campus right now. All of the, the instruction is uh, remote, but we made that we made that commitment now, we've said, through the end of the fiscal year, uh, so that people, you know, even though 95% of us are working remotely, right. we've also had to, to put out there some, um, some cost-saving uh, measures. I mean, no salary increases for next year, a freeze on all hiring, both faculty and staff, and then I and my two executive vice presidents have taken a 10% pay uh, reduction for fiscal 21, and the other vice presidents have done a 5%. Uh, the same is true for the heads of our investment company, Spider Management, and some of our highly paid uh, coaches. Gotcha. I'm, you know, somewhat symbolic, if you will, to demonstrate to the community that while we're, because we were a community that's accustomed to getting some kind of salary increase, usually in the 3% range every year. This is a way of saying we understand the, you know, that we are sharing the pain, if you will. Right, right. And, and as you... And the other thing, if I might interrupt, the other thing I forgot to mention that, that's very important, is scenario planning for next year. Just looking at, you know, what, because we, as you well know, we don't know how this is going to, end out or as the old spiritual goes you know we don't know what what the end will be at this right. point so, so you you uh you guessed my my next question um oh. as, uh, as unfortunately we get to the towards the end of our time here but um right more than ever before i think in in my life we are in a time where i feel like there is no one i can look to to say here's what's going to happen <laughs> all of the things previously in life someone was there to say okay, okay look but here's what's going to happen and it seems like no one knows given all of the information available to you you know as you project out you know a, a couple of years from now say 2 years from now um you know, are we are we back to normal? Um, are we at a new normal? And if so, what do you think is is most different 
two years from now than the way we lived six months ago? Mm -hmm. Well, I think that looking at it two, two years from now, we, it, it, we will be at a new normal. I mean, we about this 12 years ago, it were a new normal, but I think this time the, the, the impact is, the financial impact in particular is gonna be far, far greater, uh, more, more I, I would say more closely aligned with the Great Depression than with the recession 12 years ago. And so I think what you're, what's going to, you're going to see, and, and I think the key will be, of course, the vaccine, right? Uh, and there will be a vaccine, but, it, but it's not going to come overnight. It'll be at least a year away. And, and by the way, the other thing for open, in terms of just short-term opening in the fall, the key is testing. And, and I found out that it really, you know, developing these tests, particularly tests that you can get back from where, where you can get the results quickly, is not something you can just do with the snap of a finger. At any rate, to get to, get to your question, I think the new normal will be we will have found that ways and in, in institutions of higher education, and, and I would dare say even arts institutions, to use technology in, in uh, productive ways that we've not thought of or that we maybe have thought of but have not seriously given consideration to for one reason or the other. I, I think that's going to be true. Um, I, I also think, quite sadly, there are going to be fewer institutions of higher education. I think that that um, I, 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 I think that this that the, the economic impact of this pandemic is going to be so stark that there will be some institutions that just can't survive it. Um, I think that's the reality. I mean, it's, it's as sad as that as that is. <clears throat> Both higher education institutions as well as arts institutions. Yeah, yeah. It's sad for me to think about that, but um, I think that is that is a reality. I think the same is true in terms of there'll be there are restaurants that I, that I'd love to go to that will no longer exist after this. And one of the things that I want to share and want to want to stay to. I don't think any of us really knows today how, how deep and how long the psychological effects of this pandemic will last on people. That's a, that's a, that's a big, big deal. Yeah. And so who knows, one of the outcomes may be we for many, many years will be in a situation where before you go to a public event with lots of people, there's some kind of screening, right? You know, absolutely, head or whatever. Totally, yeah, absolutely. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time. But one last, just quick question, especially sure. given what you shared, which right is pretty stark. And there's a lot of people, you know, locked down at home and either work issues or personal issues you know, leave us either feeling isolated, alienated, mm -hmm. or potentially having a sense of losing hope. Where do you find your inspiration during the, the darkest of times, the biggest of challenges is, what do you do to, to find the light um, that you may not even see at the end of the tunnel, but somehow have a sense of it so you can still move forward? What do you do? Well, there's a, I mean, a number of things. I mean, I, 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 I'm a glass half full person. I've always been that way. And so I have to always look at, I always look at situations 
in a way that's more positive. Like I think our institution is going to learn a lot as a result of this this the situation that we're that we're going through. But in terms of where I find my inspiration is through through music, uh, through listening to music, to performing. I mean, I've had more time to practice and play uh, in the past month than I've had in in, in years. Uh, that's critically, you know, and I, I and, and also reading. I, I, I love to to uh, to read uh, as well. And then I'm a meditator. I meditate every single day. That that helps to keep me balanced. Help keep me centered every single day. Awesome. Well, Dr. Ronald Crutcher, you are truly one of the arts engines in our field. Uh, I really cannot thank you enough for taking the time to be with us and to share all of this inspiration um, and information with our audience. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Aaron. Take care. Yay.